Welcome back to another episode of Quillette Cetera, this time recorded in New York City, which is home to my guest for today. His name is Julian McBride, and he's a former U.S. Marine who now works as a forensic anthropologist and independent journalist. In March 2023, Julian wrote a piece for The Geopolitics, predicting that a third intifada was brewing due to several unsuccessful cabinets in Tel Aviv, policies of settler expansion and deadly attacks by the Palestinian militias. Julian is only 30 years old, but has seen active warfare, not only serving as a US Marine, but also in his work at the United Nations, where he no longer works for reasons he will explain in this podcast. Julian is also a talented artist and has founded an NGO which aims to tell the stories of victims of war through art therapy. We also discuss that in this podcast. Without further ado, let's get into it. Hey, Julian, welcome to Quillette Cetera. Thank you for having me. Every day we're hearing that Israel is committing a genocide in Gaza. Are they? You know, just based on there's very rules of law. So Israel, for most part, they did order evacuation of citizens. They are opening humanitarian corridors in Gaza City at least three hours per day. And to be honest, if Israel really did want to commit a genocide, they would not talk about any type of reconstruction or letting people back into Gaza City after the war. Because forced displacement, especially permanently, that could constitute as genocide. But they are talking about reconstruction. Israel primarily wants the international community to reconstruct, though. But at the same time, they are not committing a genocide. Collective punishment, yes. But a lot of people have to realize throughout history, collective punishment at the same time has had a military strategic effect. As we saw World War II with Germany and Japan, uh, collective punishment bombings ultimately for surrender. Serbia as well had stopped the genocide against Kosovars. And now Israel, they've been they've been to war with Hamas approximately four or five times. And the October 7th attack was the worst terrorist attack in Israeli history, but also the worst terrorist attack the world has seen since the September 11th attacks. So for them, this is a military operation to establish deterrence that whoever rules Gaza next after Hamas knows they know no longer to cross these red lines because they know what exactly, what type of military action will come from it. Mm-hmm. Do you think they'll be successful in this? Do you think the, whoever replaces Hamas, well, firstly, who, who do you think will replace Hamas? Will Hamas be quashed? I believe ultimately there will be like a Hamas underground, kind of like how ISIS was defeated in Raqqa, Mosul, but now they're more underground. I believe whoever is going to take over from ISIS is going to be heavily vetted by not only Israel, but by the U.S., EU as well. They're going to make sure it is not a government that has terrorist sympathies. That's going to be most likely propped up by the Palestinian Authority and the West Bank. And I believe the international community, they're going to try to do some type of deal that they did during the Camp David Accords, where they're going to give the Palestinian Authority extra money to make sure extremism is quelled and i believe there could be a possible chance of some type of multinational peacekeeping force in gaza city for a certain amount of years until a true civilian authority can be established that there won't be a fear of terrorism afterwards Mm -hmm. 
I saw news from today that uh, Israel and Hamas may be reaching some sort of a ceasefire negotiation in releasing the hostages. Is that correct? And can you tell us a bit more? Yes, from the reports I've been seeing from Axios and Politico today, Politico, the news website, they basically say there's going to be at least a five-day ceasefire. It's not going to be permanent, but it's going to be five days. Ultimately, they're trying to go, they're trying to go and get out younger hostages, primarily the kids, teenagers, and women. In return, Israel most likely released the younger Palestinian political prisoners, the ones that haven't been convicted or jailed for murder or kill or kidnapping. Right now, this deal is heavily being brokered right now by the Biden administration and Qatar and Benjamin Netanyahu, the uh, Prime Minister of Israel, he also thanked Biden for allowing this type of ceasefire. But ultimately, I believe the fighting will continue sometime by next week. It, It won't stop until everyone reaches their goals in this war. With this sort of flippant use of the word genocide, uh, even though we've seen footage of Israel creating safe passages and, you know, Palestinians walking with white flags and things like this. I mean, you have seen genocide face to face, right? What do you have to say to people who are using this term, I suppose? I believe people use the term because they feel like it is a more effective way of forcing like a country or a person they're fighting against, it puts more international pressure under them when you use that type of word. But it's overly abusive and pretty much it just degrades actual term of genocide. Because as I've seen before, me, my father's side of the family, we're Ethiopian. And right now there's a genocide going on in Ethiopia, the Anhara and Tigray region by the federal government. Uh, I've seen genocide firsthand in Yemen. And even Afghanistan right now, there's being a forced ethnic cleansing of five million Afghan refu- a million five million Afghan refugees from Iran, one million from Pakistan. They're being forced back to Afghanistan at gunpoint, and that can pretty much constitute genocide. Knowing what the Taliban would do to them, so by constantly saying the word genocide when it's not really a genocide at all, it's just one big everlasting conflict. You're degrading other genocides around the world that are currently mm-hmm. ongoing. Have you seen this happening with other conflicts, the use of genocide being thrown around to to degrade the, the other side? The only time I've really seen the use of genocide like that was kind of abused as well was during the Iraq war. The Iraq war, I will just say it's firsthand. It was illegal. It should have never happened. But at the same time, a lot of people point to one million Iraqi deaths and they automatically think it was the U.S. forces that killed them majority of the deaths were overall were doing the sectarian civil war, the height of it from 2004 to 2007. Uh, Sunni Muslim, Sunni Shiites pretty much went to war due to a bunch of terrorism incidents, and there were a lot of death squads. So by definition, there was an inter-kind of genocide going on in Iraq, but at the same time, people were blaming it on the United States, making it seem like the United States were killing all these people. Yes, the situation was bad. We lost control of security. But there was no genocide committed by the United States. United States not committing genocide in Iraq. It was primarily through a bunch of death squads, Iranian-backed death squads, and Al Qaeda, which later became ISIS as well in Iraq as well. Mm-hmm. And how did you become interested in this topic of genocide? I suppose, and I mean, you're a forensic anthropologist, as I've explained in in our intro. 
Um, you've dedicated your life, amongst other things, to uh, studying, you know, gruesome deaths of people who die in in warfare. Uh, what piqued your interest in this? Well, for me, uh, after I got out of the military, I just wanted to expand my knowledge because, I mean, I had a PTSD incident in Afghanistan. I just wanted to just change my life around. And I went to Adelphi University and I found two great professors of the Al-Jarakai family who took me to Crete because I was pretty much there. They're my mentors. I was their mentee. I worked there, did archaeology, and came across Ottoman-era mass graves. And the graves just moved me, and I just asked them who did this, because originally the American school education system, we really don't know this stuff. We really aren't taught this stuff as much. And they really just looked at me like I was crazy, but they could understand. And they gave me a book on the Greek genocide, Armenian genocide, and just those reading those topics, I for like the rest of the time I lived in Greece for four years, I was just moved. I just kept reading, 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 and I decided to make a career of not just being a forensic anthropologist, but being someone, a reporter who talks about the horrors of war, but also conflicts, genocides, and just I just want to give people a background through history as well, not just the overview, what you see in regular news stories, but the in-depth root of conflicts and genocides and why these things happen. Mm. What do you think lay people like myself don't tend to understand about war? For me, I personally, when I see people, I think they look at, okay, who started it? But they look at it like the events immediately leading up to it, like what happened three or four months ago that led to the war. I go back two, three hundred years just to get to the true root of the conflict because a lot of people leave out the root of conflicts and it glosses over a lot of things. For example, the Rwandan genocide, people just saw 800,000 Rwandans killed in less than a month, 30 days, and they automatically assumed it was just a tribal war between Hutus, Hutus who want, extremist Hutus wanted to kill Tutsis minor, and the minorities. But really, the root of the conflict went back all the way back to Belgian rule. Mm. Uh, the Belgians had a class system in Rwanda and the Congo area where the more light-skinned black people were called the Tutsis, and they were considered to be more elegant, so they got more privilege compared to the Hutus, who were more darker-skinned and didn't have the exotic hair as well. And I saw, I mean, and my father, grandfather, they taught us a system in Ethiopia as well during Italian Italian rule for five years during World War II, where they classified Ethiopians through race uh, categories. That's why a lot of ethnic hatred is against Amharas in Ethiopia right now. So this is the type of root of conflicts I just want to show people just mm. so that they can completely understand why something's happening. Uh, Amhara is lighter-skinned. Amhara is, well, Amhara is not really lighter-skinned. A lot of people need tribes in Ethiopia are kind of related. Mm -hmm. The Amharas, Tigrays, Amharas and Tigrayans were kind of like interrelated. Amharas mm -hmm. just ruled the monarchy for thousands right. of years and hit the Italian rule of Rudolfo Granziani, he used that to have a conflict because he didn't want the monarchy to come back when they were in exile. Right. Is there an argument that it was the British who created hatred between Jews and Muslims in in the Levant, in 
Palestine and Israel? I think, me, I think that's baseless because there was a lot of massacres against Jews, especially even before uh, the Hebrew, like there were massacres in Hebron all the way back to the 1500s. And even then, the prophet Muhammad and the early rise of Islam, he pretty much slaughtered the, ba the Banu Khareza tribe, 600 uh, women, Jewish, Arabian, Jewish people were decapitated. And it, even then, during World War One, but way before British rule, the United States actually sent the Navy, even, and that was, that was supposed to be our first intervention in World War One, even before Germany attacked us, was that mm. there were a bunch of riots and massacres going against Jews in World War One. Jews were getting a lot of blame for the crumbling Ottoman Empire, just the same mm. way Greeks and Armenians were, which led to their genocide in the Ottoman Empire. So mm. there's a lot of ethnication that went back all the way then. And I think the British people, the British are getting scapegoated a lot. Yes, they could have ruled their colonies better, but a lot of people need to realize the British were, they vetoed the UN partition plan between a Jewish and Arab state. It was actually the US and Soviet Union and the rest of the world that voted for partition. So a lot of people, they scapegoat the British, but at the same time, yeah, the British could have ruled better. I don't blame them at all for the ethnic tensions. Mm. A lot of people believe that Jews do want to ethnically cleanse the Palestinians. I'm not saying this. I'm playing devil's advocate, but what do you think? I'm actually glad you brought this up because in America, you see people argue about how like Israel is like a white colonial settler state. Mm -hmm. You see these arguments all the time about race. And I tell people, the Israel-Palestine conflict is not about race at all, because right now, the biggest far-right minister in Israel is Itamar Ben-Giver, whose family is completely Iraqi Jewish descent Mesopotamian, mm. and he was tried for extremism in Israeli court system. The majority of far-right Israelis, the ones that are actually like very, very strict on security, are Mena, Jews, the Sephardic, and the Razi, and that's because it dates back to how the Arabs and Muslims treated them as well, especially during the expulsions in the 40s and 50s. So for them, it's just a matter of they don't trust uh, have a state with Arabs anymore. And it's actually mm -hmm. more European Jews that are more likely to be more liberal and more uh, moderate slash left-wing compared to the Mena Jews who make up about 60% of Israel's population currently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's hard for people like us who have grown up in the West. I mean, you grew up with your with your father's history of or ancestry of being Ethiopian and having to flee Ethiopia because of ethnic tension. But I think, and I'm the granddaughter of Greeks who had to leave Greece uh, as well and, you know, sought a better life in Australia. But I think it's really difficult for us to understand that um, children can be groomed from an early age to hate and want to kill their neighbors. And I've been watching the memory TV. They have this, um, all these kids shows that groom children into hating, hating Jews. And I think, yeah, so many people in Australia and in the U S just don't know about this. We're not, we can't even imagine that you'd be turning on TV and seeing that. Yeah, for me, it's just, especially because in Ethiopia right now, there's a lot of ethnic hatred there. 
between Amharas, Tigrayans, Oramos. Right now, the Amharas actually, we actually lost power when the monarchy fell in 1974. So ever since then, there's been a persecution, genocide against my my tribe, my clan, my people. The Tigrayans ruled for about 30 plus years, and then the Oramos now are taking power, and they're currently led by an Oramo extremist government that wants kind of like a special privilege created state where they have ignored terrorist attacks by Oramo extremist groups. And this is where a lot of Amharas right now, they refuse to disarm, even though the army is trying to force them to disarm. So it goes back to Israel-Palestine where there's so much just ethnic hatred, ethnic tensions that have been brought up for hundreds or thousands of years to where nobody could trust anybody. And Mm. for me personally, I feel like Israel-Palestine conflict whatever peace it ended with the Oslo Accords after Arafat rejected the Oslo Accords I feel like that was the last true chance of a two-state solution completely where of the Palestinians they could have had the majority of the West Bank international control Jerusalem split between Israel Palestine and the international community Gaza could have been completely free and at that point it just came after that point the second intifada came Israelis were getting blown up in hospitals, cafes, buses. So a lot of moderate Israelis that were initially center-left, left-wing, or just completely center, they opted for more security, and they chose far-right Benjamin Netanyahu, mm-hmm. and history was just written from there. Mm. And uh, we were talking a little bit about Netanyahu yesterday. Um, what do you think will will be of him? Do you think he needs to to go for peace to be achieved? I feel like he need, he will have to go and he will be under investigation, especially be just so the lack of security of October 7th and mm-hmm. just the, the rumors questions. But overall, I feel like as of right now, he needs to stay in office until the war ends, only because Israel doesn't have a coalition government that could support anybody else. And right now, the current government pretty much is firmly behind a leader, especially during wartime. The last thing you want is a leader being ousted in wartime. It just devaluates any type of morale. But overall, mm-hmm. I feel like he will immediately have to be forced to step down two to three months mm-hmm. after the war ends. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about that claim that Netanyahu knew knew that October 7 was going to come? Because I've heard that a lot. And I've even heard Israelis question that. Yeah. For me, there's two things, because I've actually did an article that all the way back in March, April, uh, through geopolitics in 1945, they ultimately said that there's going to be some type of major regional war happening in the Middle East, and, it would, and Israel, was going to, Israel would be caught off guard due to lack of security. And I cited uh, Israel's defense minister, Yolov Galan, who said, a lot of reservists who are protesting during the judicial the judicial overall protest, a lot of them were in the intelligence field and border mm-hmm. security, such as Shin Bet. So a lot of these reservists were continuously protesting even up until September, October. So there was a lot of gaps in Israeli security. So yeah, there's a there could be a possibility that someone in the Israeli intelligence community knew especially because mm-hmm. an attack such so sophisticated at this, you have to wonder if there's any type of Western intelligence agencies that also potentially knew as well. 
because this Hamas attack was so sophisticated. You know, you have to imagine some type of Western intelligence agency had to pick it up. But at the same time, you have to realize that Israel did have a lack of security, especially during Netanyahu's judicial overall, which is one of the reasons why I think he does need to step down after the war mm. as well. Is that common that allies might know and not inform? I feel like it does happen, especially as we saw even before the 9-11 attacks, Ahmed Shah Mashud, who was the Northern Alliance leader and anti-Taliban fighter, he warned the FBI of a potential terrorist attack, and he was ultimately killed um, a couple of weeks even before in September 11th. I feel like intelligence does get lost in translation, and a lot of people need to realize American-Israeli relations were actually kind of sour right before October 7th, especially because uh, President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu, they didn't get on the best of terms. I feel like the United States most likely did warn, and the intelligence most likely got lost in translation, especially due to the rift between America and Israel then. And I feel like that's one of the main reasons why Biden is firmly on board with this military operation, this war, is because I feel like the American intelligence community and American defense industry, they realize they feel like they most likely help play some type of indirect role due to lack of security, lack of confidence in their allies. And I feel like because this this point this also plays a major role as why America's firmly back in Israel right now. Have have you heard claims that uh, there were some young IDF soldiers on the who were supposed to be patrolling the Gaza Strip that day, and I, I heard this October eighth just um, from friends of friends who live in Israel that. There was a bit of a, a story going around that there were these young women who were supposed to be patrolling and they weren't paying attention. And then just yesterday I read that female soldiers did have concerns that they felt like they weren't being listened to or taken seriously. Have, have you read about that? I've, I've heard about it a lot and unfortunately it does happen even here in the mm-hmm. United States as well. There's still kind of sexism in the military, especially now that We've been we've been trying to integrate women into infantry roles in the U.S. military the past couple of years. I know, I mean, I grew up in the United States Marine Corps, so I know all about okay. sexism, unfortunately. And I do, and I, that's that's why I want to go back to my prior point when I said about Yolif Gallant said there was a lack of security. It wasn't just reservists; it was also seasoned veterans who were protesting. So now, for example, let's say me, I'm in Afghanistan. An intel marine, I'm completely sick. I'm out of the fight, and you decide to bring a kid fresh out of boot camp directly to Afghanistan to replace me. He has mm. no idea what he's doing, and he's most likely going to get fellow marines killed. And mm. I could say that's most likely what happened in the Israeli border, where they had to call up people who weren't as trained, who didn't have the type of scenario critical thinking, mm. and a lot of those mm. freshly new recruits are most likely caught off guard. Yeah, how well. Are the IDF recruits trained? Like we hear that they're one of the best, you know, armies, militaries in the world. Is that true? Are, mm. I will say they are a top 20, mm. especially because if you have a very, very small army, but they have a professional fighting force to where you can call up any type of reservist at any time and they know exactly what they're doing, that means they are thoroughly trained. 
-hmm. And currently, Israel, they do partner with a lot of European countries and American countries. They do mil we do military exercises all the time. So they mm -hmm. are a very, very professionally small, but professionally portrayed fighting force. Mm. I'm sure you've seen claims that, you know, there are no true Israeli civilians because they all have to serve. They're all conscripted. Uh, what do you have to say about that? I mean, I have to say that's really, really bad logic. And that's a rabbit hole a lot of people don't want to go down to because in the Gaza Strip, they expect all, all males to serve in the various militant groups, not just Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, all various types of groups. So by their definition, Israel could legally conduct this scorched earth campaign because every single male is a potential military-age male, it's a potential sleeper cell. So that's a logic that a lot of people don't understand is that unless they, unless you know for a fact that they are currently serving, if they are elderly, young, they are civilians, no matter what, especially if someone is not, someone is not in uniform because mm -hmm. that's what the Geneva's convention is for. And Hamas, mm. of course, they are a terrorist organization. They don't not follow the Geneva's conventions. So that's a very, very bad slippery slope I would like to tell people not to go through because mm. as of right now, let's say, for example, Ukraine and Russia are currently having mass conscription because there's a manpower issue. That war has mm -hmm. just been so brutal. So by that logic, almost everyone in both those countries all combined close to 180 million people are military targets. So I would like to tell people there's a very big difference. Mm -hmm. And also the Russian-Ukraine war is like a conventional war, right? I heard you talking about that. And this is not a conventional war, Israel-Palestine. No, it's more of an asymmetric counterinsurgency war because Hamas, they don't abide by the rules of war. There are videos on Telegram that they are not even fighting in militia uniforms, military uniforms. They are heavily embedding themselves in civilian uh, mm -hmm. attire, and I feel mm -hmm. like that's why the that's why the quote unquote Gaza Health Ministry they report so many high deaths. It's not just civilian deaths; it's also Hamas militants. And there's actually been telegrams showing people under rubble, but there are weapons or rockets right next to them. So you have to wonder mm -hmm. if those people were most likely Hamas militants. But yeah. that, that didn't plan on wearing uniform. Mm. It was the same thing in Afghanistan. The Taliban would not wear your uniforms at all. So I assume that Hamas have learned a lot from the Taliban. Is that correct? Yes, Taliban, ISIS, because ISIS, ISIS, even though they were defeated, they also knew how to heavily embed themselves into the civilian population because mm -hmm. there's no way ISIS was able to conduct a lightning offensive capturing dozens of major cities in less than several months unless they had sleeper cells throughout the city that they could activate. So we've seen evidence now that Al-Shifa Hospital was being used or is being used by Hamas and that the UN knew about it. Um, for, for, you know, lay people, it's hard to understand that, you know, hospitals can be used like that. But uh, I believe you've seen hospitals used like that by the Taliban, is that correct? Yes, uh, in Afghanistan as well. What the Taliban would do is not only would they fire like shots at patrols through hospitals, but also mosques and schools. Their goal was for a retaliation, American retaliation, 
to hit these non-military targets because ultimately the way that the Taliban thrives is through uh, civilian casualties, misfires, and they were hoping that we would target civilians in return or that they were hoping that we would never fire so they can continue firing on us because they know our rules of engagement mm. as countries, militaries, we, are, we abide by the Geneva Conventions, uh, counterinsurgency, militia groups, they don't. And that's why I believe Israel should has, has the right to do what it needs to do in the Gaza Strip, which is a full total war to clean out Hamas because they never plan on abiding by the Geneva Conventions. And the fact that a lot of aid groups said initially there was no hostages that ever came through those hospitals, but now all of a sudden they're backtracking, now saying they came through October 7th. These groups, these aid groups cannot be trusted anymore either. And you've worked at the UN, right? Yes, for a couple of years. Can we talk a bit about that? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I enjoyed it. I, I initially worked at, for the Psychological Coalitions of United Nations. Mm -hmm. So I would do a lot of work, especially my work and discussing war, genocide, generational trauma. And mm -hmm. I would also, and I also had a chance to go around the world with the UN as well. And where did you go? I did. Them? I went to Yemen and I also went back to Greece as well uh, during the mass refugee crisis, especially when mm -hmm. Turkey mm -hmm. was pushing migrants to isles such as Levels, Hevels, and Samos. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I've noticed that the UN could be a very, very bureaucratic system where nine out of 10 people, they agree with your report, they forward it up, but the one out of 10 person will shoot it down. and that one out of 10 person ultimately gets the say, even though they may agree with your work, they have some type of bias or they're linked to some type of organization or country that they don't want to show in a negative light. And that's kind of why I decided to do things my own way. I decided to become a more independent journalist that contracts with defense companies, but also I do a lot of independent work myself. And I just wanted to show people what like news organizations or like other organizations like the UN, Doctors Without Borders, stuff mm -hmm. that they don't show and without the world. Mm. So what you're saying is well, Gutierrez, for example, is Portuguese. Um, he goes into his work carrying that history of being Portuguese and the history of his country and his ethnicity, and that affects how he, he reports through the UN. Yes. Is that correct? Mm. For me, it's kind of like, especially yesterday, apparently he said Gaza was the worst case of ethnic cleansing or genocide or war that he's seen as a head of secretary of the UN. But he's been secretary general for at least, what, five, six years now? The past five or six years, you have the height of the Russia-Ukraine war where over 100,000 Ukrainians were killed in Mariupol alone. In Ethiopia, 600,000 Amharis Tigrayans. Yemen, over 300,000 people, Syria, 600,000 people. And this has all happened underneath his watch. And I feel like he holds a bias, kind of, especially he grew up in Salazar, Eric, Portugal, where it was a dictatorship, but it was also a dictatorship that was backed by the CIA just to keep communism out. And I feel like he's holding a grudge. And I feel like that's also the same thing with the current pope as well, Pope Francis. Uh, he's, there's a lot of bias reporting when it comes to 
especially the way he reports with the way he reports of Russia's atrocities in Ukraine compared to what Israel's doing, especially because he grew up in Argentina and like again another military dictatorship that was backed by the United States. So I feel like there's a lot of people that hold grudges. They don't want to say it openly, but their policies mm. kind of link to their past. So sorry, the Pope has shared pro-Russian news? Yes. Kind of like uh, he's trying to make it seem like dismissed. Russians and Ukrainians mm. are one people, but that's also kind of a way of re- like destroying someone's ethnicity because Ukrainians, they grew up as Cossacks. Russians are very, very different. They grew up as uh, Moscovites in Peter in St. Petersburg, Moscovich, the old state. Mm. So a lot of people, when they say Russians, Ukrainians are the same people, that's kind of that's kind mm. of cultural genocide in itself, mm. because throughout the Soviet Union, uh, Yosef Stalin, the communist heads, they would try to say all Slavs are one, and they try to rewrite the history of the Baltic Baltic states, the Baltic nations. They aren't Slavic themselves, but Mm-hmm. They were forced to call themselves Slavic under the Soviet Union. Uh, mm-hmm. Poland, I mean, we saw what Poland, what happened with Poland, mm-hmm. constant massacres, repressions. So mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of bias in the system that needs to be called out in those mm-hmm. types of systems. Mm-hmm. And Putin wants to be this modern day Peter the Great, right? Yes, he sees himself as mm-hmm. like a renewed czar and a lot a lot of people don't realize his speeches aren't for domestic purposes more so his speeches are for more of his supporters outside russia primarily in mm-hmm. the west because mm-hmm. when putin talks about nuclear weapons the average russian really doesn't care because they know for a fact putin is never going to fire off nukes unless russia is attacked with nuclear weapons first but putin constantly uses the term nuclear weapons nuclear holocaust because he's gambling on nuclear threats that hopefully will, will force Western politicians to change policies against Ukraine. And a lot of people need to realize uh, it's kind of, it's a game of bluff. When someone, it's kind of like the boy who cried wolf, the teenage story that we all grew up with. You cry wolf so many times, no one's going to believe you. But the one person who doesn't cry wolf and the one person who doesn't cry wolf is the most likely the one you need to be more afraid of. Putin wants to reinvigorate this empire. Uh, is there also a bit of that happening in the Middle East, empire building, a return to the caliphate? Do you think that's that's part of what's part of the thinking there? I think it is going on slowly in Iran, but Iran's approach to mullahs are very, very different. What they want to do is they want to try to have some type of quote-unquote Islamic revolution that they had in Iran that overthrew the Shah and Lebanon, it was partially successful. Hezbollah pretty much runs Lebanon now. Uh, the Houth, the Houthis that are targeting Israel with ballistic missiles, they pretty much own the majority of Yemen. And ultimately, their goal is to try to upend the U.S. or upend monarchies, pro-Western monarchies, pro-Western world leaders to Islamic revolutions. Right now, Iran is heavily invested in the Israel-Palestine war without sending troops, but they are sending pretty much weapons, not weapons, but material support, because a lot of people don't realize this, is that Palestinian conflict is very, very intertwined in modern-day Islamic radicalism and jihadism, because a lot of Muslims see 
the loss of Jerusalem in 1967 as the biggest embarrassment in the Muslim world in quite a long time. So for them, when they see Palestinians constantly losing and Israel as a state still exists, it leads to more radicalization, more Muslims, especially the Muslims in the West, when they see their the countries they immigrate to continue to support Israel. They're more mm. prone to radicalization. And instead of actually like having a self-reflection saying, you know, why did I move to a country that I never planned to assimilate to? They blame the country mm. for not acclimatizing to them first. And that's why I feel like this war, it may not go global in a world war stance, but it could go global and continue lone wolf attacks, hate crimes, which we're all seeing throughout Europe, where yeah. France, Germany, and even uh, the UK, they even thought about just starting to deport people, ban uh, pro-Palestine protests, because a lot of them, a lot of those protests are intertwined with jihadism and hate crimes in the town. Yeah, and that's what's been sort of so worrying for me. I'm not Jewish. I'm not Muslim. I don't really have a dog in the fight, uh, but I am pro-West and I feel very lucky to have grown up in a liberal democracy um, where I'm safe and I have freedom and it's great. And that's why so many people want to move here. I mean, it's why, why your um, family moved here. It's on your dad's side. It's why my grandparents moved to Australia to enjoy what we have and it didn't just occur out of a vacuum the west just didn't you know become prosperous out of nowhere it took a long time and we've got to really protect the values because um whether the outliers in a sense you know war has been was the the default for a lot of human history so when we have peace we need to really maintain it and it's very frightening it feels like an existential threat when we see um young people you know like myself who have grown up in a really cushy you know western country and they're so anti-western and it feels like hamas and other terrorist groups in the middle east know about you know woke ideology um as does the ccp in china and they sort of manipulate the popular trendy ideology ideology of the day to bring us down and people don't see it am i crazy <laughs> no you're not at all i mean like i like you said my fact my father's side we had the opportunities in america to come here assimilate especially after the amhara persecutions after the monarchy fell my mother's side of the family were navajo indian mm -hmm. i'm a fourth generation military serviceman my great-grandfather was a wind talker grandfather Vietnam. My mom served in Grenada, where she met my father, who also was in the army at the time. And I was a Marine. And my grandmother, she fought during the civil rights movement. And that's what makes America great. We go through trials and tribulations. But at the same time, we had to fight for our rights. And we did it in a very, very nonviolent approach. We didn't go around slaughtering children, bombing hospitals. Uh, so these are the type of things where I tell people, I'm like, you know, I completely sympathize with the Palestinians. I do want them to have a state, but jihadist attacks, that's just a no for me because even now you see, you don't even see like Amharas taking out revenge where they're going around mass killing Aramos or Tigrayans or even right now 
you don't see Native Americans going around butchering white people all around the street in the United States. A lot of people don't really realize through the Palestinian conflict is that Jordan doesn't want to take any Palestinians in, Egypt doesn't want to take any. And it's not because they're saying, oh, Israel needs to take care of them, they need to stay there. It's due to the fact uh, that the Palestinian causes intertwined with terrorism, jihadism. In the 1970s, uh, a lot of Palestinians had fled during the Six-Day War. They went, to, they went to Jordan. Jordan initially trained them for terrorist attacks against Israel. But the Palestinian cause, the PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization, led by Arafat, he became very, very impatient, almost overthrew the monarchy. They killed the prime minister of Jordan, and that led to a huge civil war. 50,000 Palestinians were killed, and they are ultimately expelled to Lebanon. When they came to Lebanon, they once again tried to create a state within Lebanon. They took over half of Beirut, leading to the Lebanese civil war, 150,000 killed, and that led to Israel's intervention in Lebanon as well. And Egypt currently has a very, very radical Muslim population itself. That's why they've always constantly been in a military rule. Their only democratic election was actually Mohamed Morsi, who led the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood itself is the parent organization of Hamas. So that just shows you the state of how the Middle East is going to where, like, there need, why there needs to be some type of strongman or why there needs to be some type of permanent Western military presence because it could all go to crap in less than one day. Would Would you say, I mean, I know you're not like a religious scholar or anything like that, You're, but you do know a lot about war and you know a lot about the Middle East. You've you taught um, Middle East history, I believe, at NYU. Why, why is the Middle East like this? What is the connection between Islam and the lack of democracy and liberalism? I think it's because it goes back to where throughout the throughout the the war of the Islam ever since Islam was born, there was always a caliphate, a sultanate, or some type of empire where Muslims were always one people, and mm-hmm. it only on on certain cases where Persians or like Turkey people they didn't get along with Arabs, but at least for Arabs they always saw themselves as one people and. After the end of World War One, they wanted an Arab super state as well. So for them, it was always it was always religion, family, tribe before a country. And a lot of Arab countries to this day, they aren't loyal to their own countries. They see themselves as clan. Lebanon is a perfect example. Maronites are Maronite, Christian Maronites. You have mm-hmm. Greek Orthodox, you have Armenians, but you also have Sunni Muslims, Shiite Muslims who are pro-Iran, Sunnis are more pro-Syria, pro-Palestinian, and you also have the Druze who they sympathize with Israel because they always wanted a state for themselves. Mm-hmm. So you have all these very, very ethnicities who never really got along. So for them, they see themselves as separate and they don't really have affiliations or love for their own countries. And I feel like that's why a lot of their democracies failed because they want their own sect and power and mm-hmm. nothing else more. Mm. And it's so different to the the way we think in, you know, Australia and the United States and Canada and England. I have English Irish on one side and Greek on one side, but I'm Australian and Australians feel very, very different to, you know, British people, even though when it comes to our blood, we're Anglo Saxon. It's uh it's just a different way of thinking it's an ethnic thing right 
that's the problem with white supremacists, that they feel more of a connection to being white than being American or Australian. The first lesson we were taught in boot camp was that it was actually pretty funny. They're like, our patrol instructor said, every single one of you, Hispanic, white, Muslim, black, you're all black today. So that's how we're going to treat you. And that's how they treat us is that there was no color. We were always one person. And that's why I like the military, because it taught us brotherhood, because we're all treated like crap, because it, color doesn't matter. It's your rank. Mm -hmm. It's your rank that matters. Mm. And, and that's why I like the United States, because a lot of people here, we realize we are one country. Yeah, we mm -hmm. have a lot of problems. We're, we're divided amongst conservative mm -hmm. liberals, uh, libertarians. But at the same time, we all realize this is a country we want to improve, we want to make better. In the Middle East, it's just basically countries that are like, we want to break apart from each other. We want new countries. We want new borders. And that's the biggest fundamental difference why there's so much everlasting conflicts there. There have been lots of tensions between, you know, the Irish and the English and the Scots. And the English used to be extremely racist towards Scots and look down on them, even though we were the same color and, you know, but it sort of takes, it took, maybe I'm biased, I work at Quillette, we're all about enlightenment thinking, but it took the enlightenment for us to understand, uh, to, to sort of train us out of that barbarism because, you know, I'm sort of Hobbesian. I believe that human, the state of nature is quite violent and we are tribal people. We grew up in tribes and that's the default and we have to, um, you know, train ourselves to not be like that. So I hope, I hope, um, you know, Arab states, um, Arab tribes go through this enlightenment. That's the only solution I can sort of think of that they need to have this enlightenment movement and they need to want peace. What do you think about yeah, that? I agree. Hmm. I agree as well. It's that I feel like I'd say the world needs a reset, but not really like a true reset, but at least people just need to think outside the box more. A lot of people think with emotions instead of logic, and I feel like mm -hmm. that's a lot of thing with a lot of, especially what we're seeing in the Middle East, people are thinking more emotionally than logically, and I feel like this is why there's an everlasting conflict. A lot of people, they don't, they don't even know that during the British Mandate Rule, uh, British-controlled Palestine, which was a region, it was never a country. A lot of Arab landowners, they sold their land to Jewish, wealth to Jews. There was already Jewish presence in Jerusalem, but a lot of European Jews would buy out properties and Palestine from Arab landowners. The Arab landowners themselves, they would never tell the people living there. So it's kind of like a landlord who sells your building that you live in, and but she doesn't tell the tenants, but you find out you have a new boss. Right. So for a lot of people, they don't realize that's what led to a lot of conflict is that a lot of Arab landowners, they didn't tell their fellow Arabs that they sold land. So they lied and said that they were just being invaded by Jewish people. And that just created, exacerbated a lot of ethnic hate as well. So I always tell people, think more enlightenedly, think more critically, read books. Uh, mm -hmm. Just don't go by emotions, go by like the mm. root of conflicts. Mm-hmm. And thank you for everything that you're doing in trying to educate the masses, especially the uneducated, unwashed masses of Instagram. Um, what I really like about your your Instagram is, you know, 
you're young, you're only a few years older than me, you've grown up, you know, using social media as well and you know how to, you know, you choose really interesting photos that make you want to click and you're like, shit, what's that? I need to know more. And then you you elaborate and you give a lot of detail in the captions about, you know, conflicts that we've never heard about. And I think it's it's good because people right now are so focused on Israel and Palestine and Israel committing war crimes and genocide. And when you see actual photos of genocide um, of people having to wear stars or people, you know, in mass graves and true apartheid, you realize that this isn't real apartheid. This isn't a real genocide. It's terrible. It's war. War's horrible, but it's not what they say it is. Yes, I, I completely agree as well. <laughs> I wanted to talk about, um, well, two things. I wanted to talk about the what's happening with the Armenian part of Jerusalem. You were telling me a bit about that yesterday. Uh, yes. So there is currently a land sale that Armenians are pushing back against. Um, right now, the patriarch, I can't pronounce his name. Armenian names are hard to pronounce. I'm sorry for any Armenians listening to this. <laughs> but the patriarch did a shady deal. He sold 25% of the Crow's Garden, which is the Armenian quarter of Jerusalem, to an, to an Israeli-Australian businessman, Danny Rubenstein. So now he oh, has a 99... Yeah, yeah. Okay. He has a 99-year lease on the Crow's Garden. And right now he's trying to start construction because he wants to build a luxury hotel uh, right by it. And a lot of Armenians are pushing back against it, and it's leading to a lot of ethnic hate between Israelis in Jerusalem and Armenians. But a lot of people don't realize the root of the conflict was that the shady Armenian patriarch is the one who started it because he decided to sell off land without telling his parishioners. And that's why I go back when I say Arab tribesmen sold off land, and that led to ethnic conflicts with Jews. The Armenian patriarch has supreme authority all over the patriarch of the Armenian quarter of Jerusalem, and mm. he decided to sell off 25% of it to Mr. Rubenstein. His name is on the lease. His name, the signature is on the lease. He signed it for 99 years, and the wow. patriarch himself, he was stripped of authority by the Palestinian Authority in Jordan when they found out he actually fled Jerusalem when that happened. So he, he knows he's guilty. And the thing is, a lot of Armenians, they want to fight the court case. And I do sympathize with them, but under legal terms, the patriarch already sold the land, so it is already leased. And eventually they are going to lose this court battle because it's already leased to Mr. Rubenstein for 99 years. And that's pretty much what's going on in the court right now. Uh, I wanted to talk about, if if you can, about your experience teaching in academia. Oh, yes. Uh... For me, teaching academia wasn't bad. It was just more adjusting. I'm very young. I'm still in my low 30s. So uh, my students were close to my age. So mm -hmm. it was just hard to get kind of respect mm -hmm. based on the age. But I did mm -hmm. notice there's a rise of hate crimes, anti-Semitism mm -hmm. going around in NYU, mm -hmm. especially right by uh, Tisch Hall and by Tisch Hospital here at NYU Langone, where Lawrence Tisch was a wealthy Jewish businessman who donated billions of dollars to philanthropy and we're seeing a lot of anti-Semitic hate crimes during the Israel-Hamas war. Uh, the president of NYU's uh, law, law body, 
of law school was recently suspended due to due to her comments that were pretty much praising terrorism and I just want to hopefully try to get together try to get students together to try to have a hopefully somewhat of a good quiet debate non-throwing hands but mm-hmm. I probably will have to try to get a lot of security together to try to have that mm-hmm. type of debate before I even have it I think you're the perfect person to do it because yeah you're young and um you know it's silly to to bring it up but it's the world we live in you're a young black man and i think people are more willing to to listen to to you because you know you're not one you're not jewish um and you're not white and you know white people we don't have a great great rep right now (laughs) we're not the most popular (laughs) unfortunately Okay, before we go, I just want to talk about your your art project, um, the Row Initiative. Could you tell our audience a little bit about how you got into art and how you started this project? And everyone, I'll link I'll link you to um, Julian's artwork. They're absolutely beautiful pastels, and I want one on my wall, even though they're quite graphic and harrowing. They're really beautiful. Yeah, please oh. tell us. So for me, it went back to pretty much my PTSD in Afghanistan. I had a lot of episodes, and I think like my first two or three years, it was just hard to open up to people, I guess, is because I don't like talking about experiences unless you've been there or know, you know or went through some type of trauma. So for me, it was just hard to vocally express myself. So I went to Adolfo University, and the Azharaqai family, I became their mentees, and they pretty much taught me art therapy. They pretty much said, you know, you never have to tell us about your experience. You could just draw it and just keep it to yourself. So I started drawing a lot and I just became very, very good at art. And instead of me just drawing out how I felt, I was like, you know what? Why don't I just start drawing out things that have happened around the world? Because I've noticed on TV, if someone sees a dead body, uh, buried coming out of rubble everyone is shocked everyone goes through some type of slow trauma but at least it leaves their mind after 24 48 hours but if i take you to an art exhibit and i show you pictures of people who were killed and i re- and i pretty much draw how they were killed and from their original photos to their art photos you look at the art and i don't put a caption on it i just tell you to look at it it sticks in your mind for quite a long time and you're going to ask me what is the story behind this photo? It piques your interest more than what you're seeing on television. So RO stands for Reflections of War Initiative. So my artwork is a reflection of war that I want to bring to the entire world to show the true horrors and backstories that news, news organizations don't. Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on Quill Etc. Thank you.